This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by Isabel Hardman and James Forsyth and we are on a reef in Parliament. Isabel, we just had Prime Minister's questions where I think as one would expect, the focus was on the situation in Ukraine. What do we learn? It was quite an odd session in, in lots of ways. It was very moving to begin with because uh, the Ukrainian ambassador was in the chamber and Speaker Lindsay Hoyle uh, ripped up parliamentary protocol and allowed MPs and, uh, has to be said, the press gallery to clap. It's normally against the rules for MPs to applaud in the House of Commons and journalists, as a sort of convention, don't applaud anything because they're not involved in, in proceedings. But uh, there was a standing ovation for the Ukrainian ambassador. And then um, Boris Johnson started by making an announcement about greater uh, support for Ukraine and then it obviously went into the exchanges between him and Sir Keir Starmer, which fa- focused on economic sanctions and economic crime in London. With Keir Starmer, he said at one point, Vladimir Putin thinks that we are too corrupted to do the right thing and called on Boris Johnson to sanction every oligarch and crack open every shell company so that we can prove the Russian president wrong. And so it, it was a lot about who hadn't got sanctions, who had been given sanctions whether Boris Johnson's claim that the vice is tightening around Putin is actually true. I think it it was strange because even though we can see a a barbaric and horrific catastrophe unfolding in Ukraine, I'm not sure sitting in the chamber that Boris Johnson's tone really matched up to that, actually. He was very thunderous at one point in the session, but it was in response to a question about Conservative MPs donating money that they'd received from Russian donors to a humanitarian fund, at which point, uh, this was a question from Labour MP Bill Esterson, at which point Boris Johnson shot back saying, this is not about the Russian people, it's about Vladimir Putin. And that was the most aerated he got in the session, which I'm just not sure was quite the right tone to strike, quite the right question to get particularly worked up on. Uh, There was a question later from Alex Shelbrooke, a Conservative MP, where his voice was cracking and he was incredibly uh, forceful and emotional about what was about to happen in Ukraine and what had already happened, asking MPs to imagine that it was their relatives who were about to be murdered in Ukrainian cities. And that was really a sort of uh, a better illustration of the feelings and the force that, that should have been, in my view, expressed by the Prime Minister. James, it's one of the problems Ultimately, the Prime Minister has used many of the tools at his disposal. And you look at that question from Alex Shelbrooke, I mean, the government said they're not going to do a no-fly zone. So how much more can Boris Johnson really do? I I thought the ovation for the Ukrainian ambassador suffered in in some way from the same issue that the ovation for the Ukrainian ambassador at Joe Biden's State of the Union address last night in Washington had, which is, as you say, Katie, you know, the West has gone for sanctions. And th- those sanctions have, I think, had a more dramatic effect than anyone expected. You've basically taken a G20 economy and shut it off in the world's economy. And But you see the fact that the Moscow Stock Exchange is not open for a third day in a row, that the ruble is hitting record lows, that interest rates have gone to 20%. You know, this is having an economic effect. And I also think the fact that sanctions, that on top of it, these sanctions, companies are pulling out of Russia. I think, you know, middle-class Russians are seeing the effects of this very rapidly. And I think, you know, the disconnect between what 
is on state media in Russia and what is happening in their lives is, is beginning to become apparent. There is more defensive aid being sent to Ukraine, but as we discussed in this podcast yesterday, NATO is not going to get into a shooting war with Russia over Ukraine. I think what is also clearly true is this, is Putin faces a kind of strategic dilemma here, which is, yes, he can level Kiev and other Ukrainian cities, but then how on earth is he going to keep in power the puppet government that he wishes to install? So the West is, is, is in a strange position where it emotionally wants to say that it is with Ukraine. You have MPs wearing ribbons today. You have the Ukrainian flag flying over various buildings in Whitehall but is not prepared to fight for Ukraine. It is, it is, but there is an emotional disconnect there. This is essentially a belief about economic pressure and its uses. But I think we should be honest and realistic about the limits of what the West and the free world is prepared to do for Ukraine. And I think that that, that, there, that, that tension is going to become more apparent in the coming days and weeks as a full horror of what Putin is prepared to order his troops to do becomes apparent. Yeah, there's already a, a pressure uh, from some quarters uh, for more planning on the humanitarian aspects, uh, particularly given it, it appears, certainly the, the view of a lot of Western governments is that Vladimir Putin is, is going to lay siege to a, to a lot of the cities that uh, his troops are encircling and not, not just Kiev. But if you have these cities under siege and people going without food, is there a way of having, for instance, aid corridors where convoys are able to bring food into those cities? Now, that's a proposal that I've been talking to MPs about this morning, and they're saying, well, you know, that, that doesn't require a no-fly zone, but it requires effectively the same sort of direct engagement by NATO planes to protect those aid convoys. Not only that, but Vladimir Putin has form on this. It, the US uh, blamed Russia for the bombing of, a, of an aid convoy in Syria in 2016, uh, in which I think it was about 18 aid workers were killed and 31 trucks were bombed. So he has no scruples about the message it sends to the world in blocking and bombing and killing uh, people involved in, in aid convoys. So, uh, But I think, as James says, the full horrors is due to unfold and we are going to see a humanitarian catastrophe and there are going to be a lot of questions not just about military engagement, but about what the West can do uh, to help those people uh, besieged in cities. Uh, and there will have to be admissions that there isn't actually that much if you're not prepared to provide air cover. James, I think when the Prime Minister Minister have been trying to, I suppose, encourage hope in the situation, one of the things we often hear is that Putin, you know, is going to see a backlash. You talk there about middle-class Russians who are starting to feel this. But no one really expects Putin to go anytime soon, do they? There's a very interesting piece from The Spectator's Russia correspondent, uh, Matthews, uh, in the coming issue, saying that he thinks that this invasion is the beginning of the end of the Putin regime. But, you know, it could well take a long time in the same way that the invasion of Afghanistan was the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union, but that took over, over a decade between that and, and the fall. The one thing I would say is this, is I, I think the effect... That Russia is a G20 economy. Right? There is a Russian middle class, forget, forget the kind of oligarchs for a second, there is a kind of Russian middle class that have enjoyed you know, access to kind of holidays in Turkey they have bought western goods, they've used Apple Pay on the Moscow metro, all of those kind of things, they are suddenly being cut off from that I don't mean they want to live in Putin's 
Russia, but I think they particularly will not want to live in a larger North Korea, which is the, the way in which Russia is going. And you have had the opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, call on Russians to come out and demonstrate against the war. Look, one can't know where these things go, but I think that the fact that the Putin regime is taking these dramatic steps against the remaining bits of independent media in Russia suggests a wariness about what public opinion will think about the war. I also think it is very telling that Russian state media is still talking about a special military operation. I think the disconnect between that and the kind of increasingly indiscriminate bombing of Ukraine that you are seeing and also the kind of casualty figures is very telling. I also think that you, you see, I think, from the actions of the Russian army, you know, it, it, considerable numbers of this army are not itching to fight in this fight. There was a very interesting Pentagon briefing yesterday saying that it appears that some Russian troops are puncturing their fuel tanks so that they can cease advancing. And, you know, part of the reason for this huge column approaching Kiev is, you know, yes, it is in some ways a siege train, as, as Isabel says, but it also appears to be a combination of both logistical mistakes, meaning they're running out of fuel, and some of these Russian forces, it appears, and obviously it's very hard to stand on a roof in Parliament and speak with confidence about what is happening on the ground, but you know, it does appear that at least some Russian troops are basically finding reasons not to advance. And, and so, uh, yeah, look, I think it would be foolish for the West to plan or to assume that Putin is going to fall in, in, in rapid order. But I think that he is clearly made a massive strategic mistake with this campaign. It has weakened his position both internally and internationally. And how quickly that plays out, look, I, you know, we cannot know. But I think that Vladimir Putin is in a much weaker position than he was before he invaded Ukraine, both internally and externally. Isabel, just finally, do you think it's safe to say then, if we think about the devastation we expect to see in the coming days and weeks, that it's going to get tougher for figures like Boris Johnson? We saw the heckle yesterday at that conference, that, you know, that urge for him to do more. And as we see more horrific scenes, do you think that the sense that Boris Johnson could, you know, his statesman-like, is going to come under more scrutiny as the UK perhaps looks more powerless? Yeah, I, th- I think that's, that's absolutely right, that it's, you, you can appear statesmanlike if, if you're doing great things, but if you're really just uh, quibbling over the detail, and I'm, I'm not saying that economic sanctions don't have an impact and that you know, sanctioning oligarchs isn't important, which it is, but, but if that's all you're talking about, it, it starts to get into a, a conversation, quite a detailed conversation that, that people tend to lose the thread of. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you, James. And thank you for listening.